Hey friends, this is Ashley coming to you before this episode starts. I just wanted to let you all know that I have a newsletter. It's also called Boss Barista and you can find all of our episodes along with full transcripts and articles about each episode at the newsletter. So go to bossbarista.substack.com and all of this stuff will just end up in your email. It's kind of like magic. So again, bossbarista.substack.com to find all of these episodes along with additional content. Thanks for listening and on to the show. Hey friends, welcome to Boss Barista, the podcast about workplace equity and employee empowerment in coffee and beyond. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. My guest today is Stephanie Alcala, a green coffee trader specializing in sustainable coffee supply chains for RGC Coffee in California. Stephanie studied environmental science in college while working at coffee shops and was able to connect her love and interest in sustainable agriculture and coffee through her master's work at the University of Michigan. Funnily enough, she did this through her interest in bats. She mentioned to a professor that she loved both bats and coffee, and that led to learning more about coffee plant genetics, biodiversity, and the complex intersection of environmental, social, and economic sustainability. Stephanie has taught classes on sustainability in coffee at Whittier College, and she still works to raise awareness about the critical need to invest in sustainable systems in coffee. This episode is big. We talk a lot about big questions like what does it mean to measure the impact of a sustainability plan, and is something actually sustainable if you expect to receive personal gains? But we also zoom in, and we talk about individual career moves, accomplishments, and the idea of self-actualization for all members of the coffee supply chain. Sustainability often gets talked about solely from an environmental perspective. And that forces us to think of sustainability as a thing about big ideas and systems. But in this conversation, we also talk about sustainability from a personal well-being lens and how a truly sustainable supply chain aims to provide a meaningful and fulfilling life for all of its members. Here's Stephanie. Stephanie, I was wondering if you could start by introducing yourself. Hi, Ashley. Yeah, my name is Stephanie Alcala. I work for a green coffee importing company, Free Trader, and I also work in sustainability. And that is my, that's my during the day. What do you do not during the day? I love that you prefaced that as like your daytime stuff. I don't think I've ever had anybody introduce themselves in that way. So now I'm like, what do you do off hours? <laughs> off hours, I am a family woman. Got my parents nearby, brother and sister, and their families. Uh, I like to ride my bike. I am just got really big into mountain biking. Just like to be in nature. I love to eat, whether cooking or eating out. So that's that's off hour stuff. <laughs> I love that. I love that you you did that preface. Now I'm going to introduce myself as like daytime, nighttime Ashley, even though that, that doesn't quite make sense. But I think I'm going to go with that. Um, speaking of your family, did you grow up with coffee in your life? 
I did with my dad. My dad is a dark roast, creamer, sugar. He's adding it in, tasting it. It's got to be that perfect ratio. But I didn't start drinking coffee until I was 19. Do you remember any formative experiences around coffee kind of as you were getting into it? The first time I started drinking coffee was during a study abroad trip. The first time I ever left the country, I went to the Netherlands for for school. And that was my first exposure to cafe culture. And, you know, I, I don't know what they call them, but you know, essentially a latte. Then I went on a mini vacation right after I met my dad in London. And that was our first trip together. And I remember him walking at this nighttime market in this borough. And he was like, I could really go for a coffee. It was already in the evening. And we go to the stand and he's like, I don't have coffee, but I can make you like a flat white. And we're like, what is that? And he's like, oh, I'll make it for you. So he makes my dad this flat white. And it's like the most beautiful Rosetta. We had never seen anything like that. We're like, wow, that's so cool. So right after I, I came back, that was when I, I was like, I want to get a job at a coffee shop. I love that. I love that. That's such a descriptive memory. And it's also really touching that you got to share that with your dad. What was it like when you were back home and you're like, hey, dad, I'm going to go work at a coffee shop now? He thought it was a good place for, you know, to be social and outside of school. And but then he would always say like, oh, it's that like the hipster coffee or you know, he's like, I, I don't really like the type of coffee you drink. <laughs> that still holds true. That's really funny. At what point did you, so you started working at a coffee shop. At what point did it become clear to you that this could be something that you could pursue more seriously? Or was that something that you knew immediately when you started working at the coffee shop? No, I really enjoyed my time at that coffee shop. It was called Drip in Chino Hills. I met one of my best friends there. Like that place is just, it was such a special shop and I really in, enjoyed my time there. But it wasn't until I graduated college and then started working at another coffee shop, Groundwork, where similar experience, they really invested in employee education. It was at Groundwork where I realized, oh my gosh, <laughs> I've been studying like sustainable agriculture and been really getting into this topic. And now through this education, I'm like realizing coffee's a plant and, you know, there's all these environmental challenges. And it was working there that I made that connection. Like, oh, I can apply like my academic studies to a career in coffee through this like agricultural route. Yeah, you're one of maybe a handful of people that I know who have like a really academic kind of story around coffee. You were able to connect what you were learning about sustainable agriculture in college to what you were doing in coffee. And then you went to school to learn about coffee some more, right? Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about that? When I realized I wanted a career in coffee, a good part that played into that important part that played into that was 
somebody at Groundwork gave me a book. They said, okay, you want a career in coffee? You say you want to be like, maybe be do green buying because you like to travel. You want to work in, in sustainability and coffee. Read this book, read God in a Cup. And so I read it and, you know, like, yeah, I want to do this. I want to go be a green coffee buyer. This book painted a really like, um, like lavish traveling lifestyle, the exploratory aspect really gained, like attracted my attention. At the same time, I was still on this track of, of like, I like science. I like environmental science. Or I go to more school. Like, what do I do with this career? Trying to find opportunities, internships. I was really trying to get a bat research internship. What's that? Because uh, I wanted to, a bat, like the animal, the bat. Oh, the bat. I thought that was an acronym for something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wanted to, I did some research during undergrad for bats roles in ecosystem services. So essentially I was like trying to figure out my, my career and what I wanted to do. And then I got a real amazing opportunity to interview at the University of Michigan in the ecology and evolutionary biology department. And so I'd just finished reading this book, God in a Cup, working at Groundwork, and then also still had my my love and passion for bats. And I show up to the interview and during lunch, all things good happened during lunch. <laughs> I was sitting next to this guy and he was like, okay, so like, tell me about yourself. You know, all the, all the interviewees are there, faculty, students. And I was like, well, I really love bats and coffee. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out that this man, he studied plant genetics in tropical ecosystems, primarily in Central and South America. And he said, oh, well, I know Price Peterson from Hacienda Las Meralda. If you get in and you want to join my lab, you can do your master's research on Price Peterson's farm and we can create like master's research study on it. So that's exactly what happened. Wow, that's so cool. I love that story. So can you talk a little bit about what your master's research entailed once you like actually got to school and were able to pursue that? Yes. Oh, plant genetics. <laughs> plant genetics. First of all, coffee is a plant. <laughs> and second of all, genetics is really hard. <laughs> I did not have a background in genetics. I took this on primarily because I thought it would be a great way to have a career in coffee. I soon and quickly learned that genetics, genetic biodiversity is the most important aspect of environmental sustainability it's, and to our industry. I thought it would be a great way to gain that baseline knowledge in an academic setting and have that as my foundation of understanding. And then to use that to get back into working in the industry and maybe learn more of the economic side in a job role versus going to school for economics. I thought it was interesting that you said that genetic diversity is, I was about to say one of the most important things, but I think you even said the most important thing to sustainability. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that means specifically in coffee, because the way that I understand genetic diversity in coffee 
is that there is very limited genetic diversity in coffee, and that is a big problem. There are roughly 124 known species of coffee. Cafea, the the genus. Primarily, only two out of the 124 species are commercially cultivated. Maybe three, but two. Conifora, Conifera, Robusta, and Arabica. And within specialty, for the longest time, until most recently, it's been growing, but it's been Arabica coffee. So in the world of specialty coffee, then you're only working with one species. And all this, the history of like how the cafe Arabica plant was distributed around the world because it only started with a small subset of plant material then that was used to like spread and be distributed. You're working then with a very small and narrow base, all of the different varieties we have now that are being grown more widely have a very small distribution genetic diversity. But now there's breeding and we've introduced new varieties. And so it's expanding. But and now that there's introduction of of Robusta into some of those varieties as well. There's a lot of potential. So the long answer is, yeah, we're working with a limited narrow base, but there's a lot of potential. Right. And the problem with having a limited narrow base is that when there's a problem with one of the species, like it becomes susceptible to disease or it's incredibly delicate and climate change is affecting its ability to grow places, we kind of, I don't want to say we're screwed, but we're kind of screwed. Pretty much, but luckily there is uh, there's some good diversity. And uh, then it brings all into the question, like the quality aspect. And I know one of the greatest organizations I'm such a fangirl of is World Coffee Research, a organization that is entirely dedicated to coffee genetics and I've been reading about their new their new updates for their some projects and where they're taking the organization they're primarily focusing on arabica but there is plans in the future to in, start breeding and working with other species as well so and there's a, a researcher named Aaron Davis is who's really been advocating for the integration of other species too. So I we're, I think we'll be okay. We'll figure it out. Okay, that's good to hear because I think... So a lot of the listeners of this show are coffee folks like us, like people who work in the industry. And then a lot of people are people who just are excited about coffee and are interested in coffee. And I think one of the questions that I get from kind of that like latter group of people is like, oh, I see headlines that are like... in. 50 years, we might not have coffee. By 2050, that's kind of one of those big benchmarks. Half of the world's pop, like growth of coffee is going to be gone. And I wonder for people like that who see headlines like that and are like, whoa, that's really alarming. What should they be asking? Like, what should they be looking for right now in 2023 when they're looking at at coffee? Like, what issues should they be asking questions about? I think the idea of the 
the educated consumer is something that's been at the forefront of my mind recently. Because if consumers are asking or are seeing these headlines and it's causing concern, how can they support and do their part? Like that is a very new and recent topic we've been we've been bouncing around and one of the major takeaways from the pandemic was the realization that if each of us does our part collectively we can achieve a goal i wonder how we can start to really work together with the consumer to really start to make the necessary decisions and changes now so that we don't run into a future that it doesn't have coffee. And I would also say that humans innovate on demand. So it'll be 2049 and then we'll be like, okay, we have the solution. We'll save coffee next for next year. That's a funny way to put it. Like we're the world's best procrastinators and we'll figure out a problem or we'll figure out the solution to a problem at like 1159 before something's due at 12. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's that's an optimistic view. And I think that the, both both things can be true, that we can be cautious and really concerned about like the future of coffee, while at the same time, hopeful that we'll figure out a solution and we'll innovate. And there is time still for innovation. And I want to continue on the theme of sustainability. And I think that we're going to go into some directions that maybe don't feel like they're about sustainability, but they're definitely about sustainability. How did you start to converge like your interest in coffee with your interest in agriculture and sustainability? Did that always seem obvious to you? No, it was during my journey that you meet people, you learn things, and it just takes you in different directions. I was interested in sustainable agriculture. Then I made the connection that coffee is an agricultural crop, which led me to Michigan, which led me into reading all these papers about, I was trying to understand genetic diversity. And what I ended up really researching was coffee sustainability. So I read all these peer reviewed research articles about the topics of social, environmental, and economic sustainability. And so I was presenting, I ended up applying, trying to get back into the private sector. So I attended the SCA RICO Symposium as a, a fellow. I, I applied and gave the background of what I was researching in school. And it was during that presentation that I was then approached by an academic from Texas A&M University. And again, it was another book. He said, read this book. You're talking about genetic diversity. You're talking about sustainable agriculture. Read this book. And, and so I did. And that was a book about ending world hunger and poverty and economic and community development. And that book sent me on a journey for expanding sustainability beyond environmental sustainability to really include the people and the business behind sustainability. I want to talk about the people behind sustainability because I think you're right when people hear the word 
sustainability, they often think of environmental issues. And obviously, that's a huge part of sustainability. It's why we're talking about climate change. It's why we're talking about, you know, will we figure out a solution to coffee in 2049, the year before it's supposed to all go extinct? Or how do we get consumers asking questions about this now? But on a people perspective, coffee also struggles, I think, a lot with the idea of what sustainability looks like on that end. So I guess for you, like what what have been some of the questions that you've been asking yourself about like sustainability from a people perspective as you look at different actors um, involved in like cultivating and making coffee because there are so many people that are involved in this system? Yeah, I have a hard time wrapping my head around the amount of people involved to bring coffee from the soil to the waste basket, I guess, the end of cup user. I, I think I saw something that's like 90 something hands touch a coffee before a consumer gets it. Physically touches it or touches the paperwork around it too? <laughs> I don't, I think physically touches it. So even a good point considering like the paperwork that's surrounded and all the other actors who like never even actually interact with the physical coffee cherry itself, but are still involved in getting that coffee from point A to point B. That's a really good point. But I think, I think I saw somebody talk about 90 something hands. That's a lot of different people in a lot of different places. When we think about so many people, it's easy to generalize and group them together, but we each have our own stories and challenges and aspirations and desires. And we're all unique human individuals, we're all working in coffee in different capacities, but also in different circumstances, in different regions of the world, born into different, you know, situations. And so it's all of these different people in different places. How can we create an industry that allows each of them to be valued for the work that they're they're putting in in their role in, in the coffee supply chain? Right. And something that we kind of talked a little bit about before we started recording, and I'll just bring it back into this conversation, but I recently interviewed Brendan Adams, who owns an importing business called Samia. And one of the things that he talked about was the idea of like opting in and opting out of coffee and how certain actors get to opt in. I would say that probably you and I get to opt in. And mm -hmm. there are certain actors who do not get to opt in, maybe like kind of both ends of the coffee supply chain. You have farmers who maybe like this is their livelihood and this is what they have and this is what they have to do. And then maybe baristas who are working for minimum wage jobs and don't have a lot of options. And one of the things that I think is a really interesting way to think about sustainability is how do we make it so that everybody who's part of the system doesn't feel like not necessarily that they're obligated to be part of it, but is self is self actualized in a way where like I am living like the best version of my life in this role that I occupy, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a really difficult. It's really difficult to even fathom. I've never thought about that, that the opting in choosing versus not really having a choice to be working in this industry or something you're born into. And it's again, going back to this idea of like, how can we improve our industry so that everyone can 
maybe this isn't your passion and or maybe this isn't something you want to be doing and having a long career in, but you find yourself currently working in, how can you still feel valued, appreciated, fulfilled, and with your basic human needs met while in the industry? It would be for the individuals who opt in and are in change-making positions to really address this reality. How do you see your role in the industry? Like, where do you see yourself in this complex kind of web of coffee? I feel so fortunate (laughs) to have the career and the position that I'm in. And I always tell everyone I have the best job in the company. And my role is to be a connector, listen to what other people are experiencing and do my my best to kind of integrate solutions into my day-to-day operations, which is I work for an importing company. I'm, a, I'm trading coffee. I'm buying and selling and I'm working and working with suppliers and I'm working with roasters. So right there, I, I, I'm just trying to better understand where we're at as an industry, how we can improve and, and use my role to, to help. So you said a couple of things in there that I want to uh, ask some more questions about. So initially, you talked a little bit about solutions and some of the solutions you've kind of learned along the way. And I was wondering for you, as you have been on this kind of end of the supply chain, as you've learned more and more about the different gaps between buyers and sellers and the private sector and like the public sector academia, what are some of the things that have impacted you that you've learned along the way that you're like, oh, actually, like, this is super important. And I wish more people understood this, or I wish I had known this sooner. At the most basic level, I had no idea. I've been working for RGC for the past three years. I had no idea what the role of an importer was, or what they did. I still barely understand it. So... (laughs) (laughs) it's been a steep learning curve and then I started my role March 16 2020 and so it's I saw it at the beginning and I experienced it (laughs) during and I'm coming out still so much to learn it's been a it's been a wild ride I've interviewed a fair amount of importers, mostly because that is probably the part of the industry that I understand the least. And I have some broad understanding that an importer is essentially the person who is bringing in coffee into markets where people are going to consume it. Like they're kind of the bridge between the people who are growing coffee and the people who are going to consume that coffee. And that's a very broad way of looking at it. And I think for a long time, I imagined that job being like a person who tastes a lot of coffee and decides this one, not this one, this one, not this one. Like they're, they're kind of this big nexus point, at least that's what I thought. And as I talk to more and more importers, it's been really interesting to hear them talk about what their responsibilities are versus what their job is. And I feel like more and more importers are talking about like my responsibility is to work with farmers and ensure that they're getting the best price for their coffees and to find 
buyers that are really going to understand what they're doing and what they need and to be able to bridge that gap between people. It's almost like a matchmaker in a way. Mm -hmm. And I wonder for you, if that's like the way that you started to see your job, like how is that shift and how is that morphed? You're exactly right. We're matchmakers. It's the, the delicate dance of mitigating risk. We have these, it's, I work for a family owned importing company. We just celebrated our 55th year in business with 55 years comes long-term partnerships where the supplier roaster and the importer you know we've grown our businesses together over the years and so you're mitigating the risk by bringing in cultivating these long-term supply chain partnerships where there's accountability there's reliability on your partners that they're going to be producing the coffee and you're going to have a seller. How do you think of your job from a sustainability perspective? And you talked a little bit about that. You talked a little bit about ensuring long-term partnerships. Like that's part of it is ensuring that farmers and roasters can work together for a sustained period of time because coffee is a thing that you grow and it, it grows once a year, sometimes two, if you live in certain parts of the world. And knowing where that people need to know where that coffee is going pretty much like from the get go. So sustaining long term partnerships is part of that sustainability equation. But how else do you think about sustainability in terms of your role? One of uh, the biggest lure that got me to this job I have now is just everything in our in the company's values and mission is about elevating and supporting our supplier partners and and the communities that we source coffee from. And so they have a wonderful, amazing sustainability program that is all centered around de- implementing and managing community development projects with our supplier partners. They have this amazing program and all of these projects that we developed collaboratively are part of our sustainable coffee program, these sustainable supply chains. And they're sustainable because they have these community development projects actively working in them. And so that is where I really see my sustainability focus of my, of my interest play into part is I'm trying to really grow and develop the demand as well as the supply hand in hand of sustainable coffee supply chains. I want to hit on something that you also mentioned too, that these community projects are often developed within the community. I I have to imagine, maybe I'm assuming, and you can talk Mm -hmm. more about this, that a lot of the sustainable projects that look to improving communities, to improving coffee growing communities are homegrown and they come from the people who are actually affected by the communities as opposed to like a third party actor coming in and saying, this is what we think your community needs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So why is that like an important part of sustainability? Because I think that that's not necessarily even that obvious that like sustainable solutions have to actively involve the people who it's supposed to involve. What first comes to mind is from that, the book that, first got me interested in community development, 40 Chances, is we only, from the outsider perspective, we only see 
what's going on very on the shallow term. And in that book, they talk about a recent natural disaster that happened in a tropical ecosystem. There was a humanitarian organization that sent aid. They sent clothing to give relief. And what they sent was snow clothes to a tropical ecosystem. That's at the most like broadest stroke that we don't know as the outsiders what the community needs. And that is essential because we don't know their day-to-day challenges and where they see opportunity, what they view as a priority in addressing. It's you need to listen to the stories, the perspectives, and go from there. And I think that also plays into the importance of for something to be truly long-term within a community, it must be have a sense of ownership and then adoption by neighbors, neighboring communities. But that sense of ownership only comes from if you really do have a seat and a voice at the table and you feel heard and you see those that translated into 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 real action that aligns to what you've said. And that's long-term, that will provide long-term adoption and, and input, and that will make solutions that are implemented actually beneficial. One of the things that the RGC website says is that sustainability is is not a fad for us. It's a critical business strategy. And I think I think we are starting to turn the chapter where a lot of companies are starting to recognize that sustainability is not just like the 2021 buzzword. Like it's it's critical, it's vital, and it's something that every company needs to address. But I think what happens when something like sustainability becomes part of a business model is that there has to be some sort of like proven outcome for it. Like there has to be something that you can go to a board meeting and kind of say like, we implemented this sustainability project and it's helped this, like helped our company, like whatever percent. And I think, and and I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. I think what actually needs to happen when we talk about sustainability and sustainable programs is that like, we have to untether our self self like we have to untether like the idea that anybody who confers a solution should have to benefit from it if that makes sense like a business like helping to implement a sustainable program needs to be able to be like we do not need to actively benefit from it like if the community that we're servicing benefits from it like that's a win it's almost like Mm -hmm. yeah do you see where i'm going with it what first came to mind was we implement these projects in like together in partnership with cooperatives mm-hmm. and we don't buy all of their coffee. We're working on these projects. We're improving the resiliency of the supply chain, but not all the coffee's coming to us. So others are benefiting. And at the end of the day, that benefits the entire industry. We're all working towards, we're all in the same boat. We're so it, we don't necessarily have to directly um, benefit from our efforts because we're trying to do something that is for the greater good of our industry. If we, if the industry wins, we win. 
But I think you're right. Like there has to be some sense of like we have to look at the bigger picture of where we are as a globe, I guess. Um, and there's something that I do like about like looking at things globally because it's like finite. Like that's that's the biggest we can look at something, and and say like how do we benefit? How do we how do we implement a system that's beneficial globally? And not necessarily need to benefit from it. And I think like I don't this is maybe a little cheesy, but I read like a lot of like advice columns, like people who write into like different newsletters and stuff, like asking about like my daughter is having a wedding and not involving like me and my wife enough, even though we're paying for it. And it's like, well, then that's not like a genuine gift. Like that's not a genuine thing you're doing to make someone's life better. It's something that you're doing for reciprocity, even if you don't see it that way. And I think that's really made me think about like, why do we do the things that we do and being able to claim like a benefit of like, oh, we helped a community or we helped somebody do this or we helped somebody do that is, is certainly is, is a benefit to you, is a way for you to make yourself feel better and be able to, you know, share like whatever idea like at a board meeting. But like when we're really looking at sustainability from a global perspective, it's like we have to look at it beyond that. Does that make sense? That was maybe a little convoluted. <laughs> No, it does. But and it also brings up this idea. I'm like, how do you truly measure your sustainability efforts? Like what are if you are trying to get into these boardrooms and showcase your efforts and like "Eh, we're 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 making an impact We're we're working in sustainability. Like what how do you measure that? It's like, how do you measure the the impact of one's intervention i don't know (laughs) i have no idea um and it goes globally too it's like how do you measure something that's like direct something i can measure versus something that again is like good globally if you go back to like maybe the you know like the dad paying for like their their child's like wedding thing it's like the direct impact that you might feel like by being able to participate in this fairly concrete way that you want to is direct. Like you see it and you feel it, but then the overall value of like your child's had like a beautiful wedding is like a lot more intangible. And not to say that like sustainability actions are gifts. They're absolutely necessary. We need to be engaging in them, but there is, I think a similar mindset of like, we have to untether ourselves and we have to untether our ego from believing that like, we're going to get like a good job pat for doing what is essentially like the right thing. And I also wonder how we can better communicate that we're doing the right, like how can we better convey without boasting what we're doing, but Hey, if you want the information here, it is. But also if you just want your coffee also here, it is. We need to improve our communication Agreed. Agreed. I think about this a lot, too. I've written for my newsletter about, like, certifications. And, like, I have a lot of feelings about certifications. I think that they can do a lot to signal to consumers, like, hey, this thing might be better in ways that you care about. But then again, there are, you know, one of the examples I looked at was B Corps. And there are great companies that have B Corp certification. And then there's, like, I'm not sure if they've removed it, but then there's like a beer company that has it that has been accused of like really weird and egregious things and they still have their B Corp certification. So like, what does it actually mean? And I think you're right. Like we haven't figured out a good way to communicate with people. Like what, 
what are ways that they can access things that they care about and actually learn things about companies that they want to engage with, but at the same time, not feel like it's being shoved down their throat. Like we don't seem to have that line figured out. Yeah. And I keep thinking like, what is, (laughs) what is a future of responsibly sourced coffee? And I go back and forth between my thoughts, but it's really like the future of responsibly sourced is whatever the consumer says. It's what they value. If, if that consumer is buying that bag of coffee because 10% of the proceeds goes to saving giraffes, that's responsibly sourced in the eye of the consumer. Right. And like trying to find, trying to realize that we all have the different things that we appreciate and value and making it easier for consumers to identify their values with the cup of coffee. I like that idea of making it easier for consumers to identify their value because what I was going to bring up too is that like, you're right. A thing is not responsibly sourced if like a consumer doesn't think it is. Like if we can't get someone to buy into a thing that we say is responsibly sourced, then like it really doesn't have any meaning. If like, if we do all this stuff with coffee and then it ends up nowhere, like then it doesn't matter. But mm-hmm. I was reading, I was reading an article written by uh, Namisha Parthasarthi and she was on the show. I want to say she was on the show in January. And one of the things that we talked about was how much control that we have over like taste making. Like it's no coincidence that the Vogue trend of, light roasted coffees happens like it didn't just come from consumers demanding it it comes from us as the people in control of coffee or the people kind of in the middle of the supply stream like picking these things and presenting them to consumers so how do we do that how do we curate like the most important or the most vital interventions so that we can present them to consumers in a way that's compelling that's what i love most about the specialty coffee uh, industry is that it's at the forefront of innovation working with, and it wasn't until I started working at my job now that I realized, Oh my goodness, the coffee industry is huge. And the specialty coffee industry is just a drop in the bucket. But, but what I then realized is how the specialty sector is the one who's really trying to innovate and change, constantly find and tweak what is quality. And and then the larger industry takes from their findings. And the best example that I can say is of cold brew. Uh, yes. Especially coffee industry was like, but this is where it's at. And now you see cold brew everywhere so right that's where the end the special like i see the specialty and that's the importance for us working in the industry to do like introduce new concepts and ideas to the consumer in a more approachable manner meet them where they're at and then push them a little i asked you this question off the air and i'm gonna ask and i told you i would ask you at the end of the episode and here we are what would you want somebody listening to this episode to take away from it? Ultimately, 
I want to go back to what we talked about opting in and op- and not having a choice really. For those of us who have opted in to a career in coffee, I hope people who listen to this episode and get to this point <laughs> that whatever you want to do in coffee is is possible and you can find ways to to fine tune and integrate your hobbies outside of coffee into your job, into your role. Coffee's so multifaceted with so many interesting and creative and hardworking people that there's so many ways to really create a career in coffee that's that you really can enjoy. That was Stephanie Alcala, green coffee trader specializing in sustainable coffee supply chains for RGC Coffee. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and we'll see you in two weeks. See ya. I'm just looking for a better day. Boss Barista is produced by me, Ashley Rodriguez. You can find a transcription of this episode on my newsletter, along with an accompanying article about this episode every Thursday at bossbarista.substack.com. To support the show, you can visit www.patreon.com slash bossbarista. We have over 80 patrons supporting the show right now, which is incredible. And that helps keep the show alive. We pay guests through this fund, we pay for website hosting, and we make donations. Half of our patron donations are currently pledged to five different nonprofits, each at $50 a month. Asada's Daughters, the Loveland Foundation, the Native American Rights Fund, the Grocery Run Club, and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Again, if you want to support Boss Barista, consider making a monthly donation at www.patreon.com slash bossbarista. Another amazing way to support the show is to share this episode with just one person, a friend, someone you think would learn something from this episode, anybody. Sharing on social media is also a huge help, along with giving us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. As a small production, these things matter a lot. So if you can take a little time, share out some of your favorite quotes from this episode, and tag us. That would be amazing. We're at Boss Barista Podcast on Instagram and Boss underscore Barista on Twitter. You can also send me an email at bossbaristapodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.